0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, I was asked to, in this third session, address the problem of evil and suffering. Many atheists and critics of Christianity today believe that the existence of evil and suffering disproves the existence of the all-powerful, Loving God, described in the Bible. Atheists reason it out this way. Okay, and I would imagine an atheist popping up right now on the screen. I'm not going to have that visual aid, so I'm going to have to change my voice, I think, a little bit, or you're going to wonder, is Charlie talking or is the, is the skeptic talking? But atheists reason it out that, this way. They say, if a loving God exists, he would put an end to evil. If he's all-powerful, he could put an end to evil. Since evil persists, the all-loving, all-powerful God described in the Bible must not exist. Have you heard people reason this way? I'm sure that you have. Well, Christians disagree with the atheist conclusion. We believe that the existence of evil is evidence for God's existence, not against Allow me to repeat that. The existence of evil is evidence for God, not against. Atheists create a quandary for themselves when they point at certain things going on in the world and say, if God existed, he would not allow all this evil to take place. Here's the problem. No activity can truly be evil apart from the existence of God. That's worth repeating. No activity can truly be evil apart from the existence of God. Why not? Well, without God, Without a transcendent moral lawgiver, humans would not have any objective standards or real laws by which we might determine a particular activity to be evil. In a godless universe, anything you would ever say about kidnapping, murder, racism, slavery, child molestation, and so on, would just be your opinion one person's opinion against another's. But those activities, child molestation, murder, slavery, are universally known to be evil, even condemned as evil activities by atheists. Well, the evilness of these activities verifies for us that there are actual objective moral boundaries or laws in the universe. But there can be no such thing as objective moral laws apart from a moral law giver, God. So the reality of evil actually turns out to be evidence for God, which is pretty amazing when you think about it because the existence of evil is often considered atheist's strongest argument or case against God. Yet when carefully considered, it actually turns out to be evidence for God. Well, the skeptic says, that's an interesting way to look at it, Charlie. But if God exists, he should put an end to the evil and suffering. I agree. And the Bible says he will. Just because God has not yet put an end to evil doesn't mean that he will not put an end to evil. Notice with me there in your Bibles again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. John the Apostle says that in the new heavens and on the new earth that God's going to create, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death there, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Aren't you looking forward to that? That day's coming. But it's going to happen according to God's schedule, not ours. Well, the skeptic says, great, but but, why doesn't he just intervene right now and put an end to all the evil and suffering? Well, think this through with me. For God to put an end to evil and suffering, God would have to stop every act that causes any suffering. To do that, he would have to stop all of those who cause the suffering. This would include anyone who's ever stolen anything, anyone who's ever hurt someone's feelings. Liars, alcoholics, drug abusers, people who cheat on their taxes, bad drivers, bad cooks. (laughs) That's not because the lunch had anything (laughs) bad going on. No, the the, the food was great, but but we could go on and on. That list of people that God would have to put a stop to for causing even a bit of the suffering would have about 7.7 billion names on it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that mean he'd have to put a stop to you too? Haven't you caused at least a bit of the suffering that exists in the world? Surely you have. Well, then you should be thankful God allows evil and suffering for the time being. God has not destroyed evil because he would have to destroy us. By permitting evil and suffering to continue for the time being, God is actually showing the world mercy. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not slow to fulfill His promise, His promise to come again and judge the world. But the Bible says, He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God has not yet put a stop to evil. He's mercifully waiting for people to repent. If you want to see what it looks like when God finally says, okay, enough of the evil, that causes so much of this suffering, read the book of Revelation, chapter six through 18. It involves judgment and death on a global scale. In the meantime, as God allows evil and suffering, he is working out much good in the midst of the suffering. Suffering people often turn to God and receive the kind of help they truly need a soul-saving relationship with God himself. And I'll talk more about how God works in and through suffering later. Now, the skeptic says, hold on a second here, Charlie. If God is the creator of everything, as Genesis 1 clearly says, and evil is something, then that means God is the creator of evil and cannot possibly be the loving God you all think he is, for surely a loving God would never create evil. That's a thought-provoking objection. Let me ask you a question here this afternoon. Is God the creator of everything? You're a well-taught church. Some churches I speak at, someone will shout out, no. I think, oh, no. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't ask that question. You're embarrassing your pastor. God is the creator of everything. For example, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, speaking of Jesus, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. That leaves us with a little dilemma. If all things were created by God, as this verse and others teach, does that mean that God also created evil? Well, let me ask you another question Is evil something? What is evil? Are there evil molecules or atoms floating around? Is evil some slimy goo that accidentally gets on people and causes them to do bad things? No, evil is not something you can touch. The Bible teaches that evil is not a thing that God created, but rather a departure from the way things ought to be. You want a good definition, biblically speaking, of what evil is, it's a departure from the way things ought to be, a nonconformity to God's will, a deviation from God's standards. So yes, God is the creator of all things, but that doesn't mean God is responsible for the existence of evil, because evil is not a thing. Well, the skeptic says, if God's not directly responsible for the origin or existence of evil, then who or what is? Well, to answer the question concisely, people. Our relatives, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that God made, were the first humans to depart from God's will. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. Don't think that you're going to show up in heaven someday and hunt down Adam and Eve. Give them a lecture. (laughs) the conversation would quickly turn back to you. What did you do? We're probably guiltier than they are of different sins. So the skeptic says, Charlie, you're saying that the Bible places the blame for evil at the feet of humans, not God? Right. But the skeptic says, Genesis 1 says that everything God created was good. How could Adam and Eve have done that which is evil if they were truly good? How could that have happened? Well, in response to that, the Bible does say that everything God made was good. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, says that everything God made was very good, and that included Adam and Eve. But we disagree with the skeptic's conclusion that good creatures are incapable of doing that which is evil. We believe that one of the good qualities God created mankind with was something the Bible calls free will. Freedom to choose between opposing options, morally speaking, is a good thing. God gave that kind of freedom to Adam and Eve, and he gives that kind of freedom to us as well. So God created mankind with free will. Evil originated and continues today because of what free moral agents, humans, did and continue to do with their free will. But the skeptic says, I still think if God exists, he's the one to blame for the presence of evil. According to the Bible, he's the one who created the people with the free will who do the evil. Well, let me ask you this question. If a man stabs somebody with a knife, who's to blame? The knife company who made the knife or the man who did the stabbing? Obviously, the man who did the stabbing, unless your knife company is based in California. Well, just as the knife maker is not to blame for the misuse of the knife, we think the same is true when it comes to the presence of evil in the world. The world God made was very good. The sin, the evil, the suffering that's entered into it is the result of mankind's misuse of his freedom. Think of how much better life could be on the planet today, even after the fall, if there were no criminals, corrupt politicians, racist gangs, iron-fisted dictators, terrorists, wars, drug dealers, drunk drivers, absent parents, child molesters, schoolyard bullies, arsonists, and adulterers. Just to mention a few of the people causing problems. Think of the billions of dollars that could then be invested in improving the quality of life for people all over the world if that money wasn't continually being spent fighting evil and sin. That kind of world is coming when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom here on the earth. We look forward to that. Anyone ready for no more elections? A righteous king for a thousand years? Come Lord Jesus, I'll take that any day. Now, some of you might be wondering, as a student of the Bible, and thinking, well, you know, Charlie, it seems to me that some of the evil and suffering in the world can be attributed to the work or the influence of the devil also, not just humans misusing their free will, and I would agree with that. I think a lot of the evil and suffering in the world probably could be rightly attributed to the work of Satan. Probably far more than we realize. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Another translation says the whole world is under the sway of, the influence of the evil one. So Satan has a tremendous influence today on world affairs for evil. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said that the devil is a murderer and a liar. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said that the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. So then, in light of those verses, it's safe to conclude that some of the stealing, destruction, and murder that you see on the evening news is the result of his work, his influence, Well, Charlie, why does God allow him the power to do this? Well, there are a variety of reasons. I'm going to touch on some of them here in a few minutes, but I think it's important to point out that humanity is much to blame for Satan's successes in carrying out his wicked schemes. James chapter four, verse seven says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will, who knows the verse? flee from you. Well, when people refuse to submit to God and resist Satan's temptations, they open themselves up, knowingly or unknowingly, to being his tools, his agents to accomplish the kinds of things he wants to accomplish in the world, stealing, killing, destroying, and so on. The Bible even speaks of those in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, of those who've been taken captive by the devil, Paul says, quote, to do his will. There are people out there today doing the devil's work. They've been deceived by him, taken captive, and now they are his tools. Nicholas Cruz, I hate to even say his name, probably shouldn't, a young man, a couple of years ago, who went into a school down in Florida and shot and killed 17 people. He said in an interview after he was arrested that he had been instructed by demons to do what he did. And it was interesting to watch the media kind of blow that off. They kind of scoff at that. They don't believe in the existence of demons often, you know. And maybe he's just trying to get out of, what he did by blaming it on them. I don't think he was trying to get out of the blame. I think he was actually telling the truth, probably. I don't know for sure. Demons probably really did instruct him to do that. If he would have submitted his life to God and resisted the devil, Satan would have left him alone. So Satan is able to successfully carry out what he wants to do when we refuse to submit to God and resist the devil. So again, our misuse of the freedom God has given us is leading to all kinds of additional suffering that's going on in the world today. Well, the skeptic says, if the evil and suffering in our world originated with mankind's misuse of freedom and continues because of our misuse of freedom, why didn't God just create a world without human freedom? That would have solved it all. Adam and Eve never would have sinned. That school gunman never would have shot up the school. They think that that's a viable solution. Why didn't God just make a different kind of world where there was no such thing as free will? Well, certainly God could have created a world with creatures that were wired, pre-programmed to always do what God wanted them to do but the relationships between the creatures and God would have all been void of love and meaningless to God. Why is that? Well, in order for meaningful, genuine, loving relationships to exist between God and people, people must be free. Free to love Him or free to hate Him. If there's no free will, love can't even exist. That's one of the reasons why I think it blesses God to see you here today. There's plenty of other things you could be doing on a Saturday. But you came down here freely. You didn't come down here because God pre-programmed you and wired you to come down here. He could have done it that way. We could have all shown up today and sang, good, good father, and just walked around with guitars all day. How meaningless would that have been to God, though? They're only doing that because they have to. So again, Love can only exist where there's free will. So God sought worth it to grant mankind real freedom. Well, the skeptic says, yes, freedom may be good and there is a lot of evil. I suppose it results from mankind's misuse of it. But I have a hard time believing in a God who would create hurricanes and earthquakes and other natural evils. Well, in response, first off, I'll point out that hurricanes and earthquakes are not inherently evil. There's nothing immoral about an earthquake or hurricane. We need big storms. They bring up lots of fresh water from the ocean to to water hundreds of miles of dry wheat and cornfields so millions of us can have food to eat. Rain and storms are part of the incredible ecosystem God put in place that provides enough sustenance for 7.7 billion people to have three meals a day, not to mention all the food that the animal kingdom requires. Now, occasionally, more rain falls than we would like. If you choose to live on the beach near the Gulf of Mexico, You're going to have to live with that decision. The view is amazing. I mean, I look at some of these houses in Florida. They're wiped out now. But I think, wow, that was a beautiful neighborhood. I mean, who wouldn't want to live there, right, on the beach? But we know that big hurricanes come through occasionally, and it's a big risk to build a home that close to the water. And that's why the insurance companies are going to charge you an arm and a leg to insure your house, because they know too. Like, that's not very smart to build a house there. So we're going to charge you, like, you know, $5,000 a month to, to cover that house in, in case of this thing. But, but I think, you know, let's not happily drink all the fresh water and eat all the food that the rain produces throughout the year and then get mad at God when a large storm rolls ashore. It's part of the ecosystem that provides food so that we can all eat. But the skeptic says, I I am mad, Charlie. You you say the rain provides enough food for 7.7 billion people, but there are hundreds of thousands of starving people in the world. And there are. It's sad. Our hearts go out to those people. And thankfully, in many of those situations, there are Christians on the ground seeking to minister to them and get food and aid to them. But the lack of food in certain areas is not due to God having created a faulty planet or ecosystem. Humans are currently producing enough food to feed 10 billion people. Okay, we're just under 8 billion as far as the world population goes. The lack of food in some areas is almost always because of wars and governments not permitting food and aid and supplies to reach the people. That's what's happening. You look at some of the the hunger that's going on in certain areas, you can almost always connect it to a war. Well, again, the cause of that would be mankind misusing his freedom. God doesn't want these countries warring with each other and then oppressing the people and keeping out aid and that kind of a thing. Well, Charlie, what about earthquakes? They're not helping the planet. Actually, they are. Geologists tell us that tectonic plate activity is good for the health of the planet. The relief of the Earth's internal pressure is what keeps the planet from exploding. The movement of the Earth's plates also recycles nutrients that collect in the ocean and returns them back to the continents. In order for plants to grow and to continue to nourish humans, the crust of the earth must be replenished. It's part of the ecosystem God put in place to provide food for billions of people. But if you decide to live in San Francisco, for example, right near a major fault line, where major earthquakes are known to strike once or twice a century, you can expect some serious problems occasionally. And we know that. God's not forcing people to live in towns built on top of fault lines. I think sometimes the angels are looking down at us and thinking, why do they live there? Move your city over here. You know, back up your house. It's so close to the water. Move it in. When it comes to tsunamis... This is often, you know, when a, a major tsunami hits, someone will ask, well, how could, how could God allow this? Well, again, there's nothing inherently evil about tsunamis. They occasionally happen as a result of plate tect- tectonic activity. Oh, I've got some great pictures. I keep looking over there for them, but they're... So, <clears throat> you guys can see that, right? No. If you build a village right at sea level... You can expect some serious problems once a century when when a large wave rolls ashore. I don't think we should get angry with God when that happens. The skeptic says, but Charlie, even if the suffering that comes when buildings fall and cities flood is connected to the decisions we make, and even our sin, couldn't God stop some of these events? He could. And I believe God does stop or prevent certain events you're a note taker jot it down second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7 says that he does second Thessalonians 2 7 life on our planet could certainly be much worse but when God does prevent tragedies loss of life and so on what happens life continues as though he hasn't done a thing To those looking on, it appears as though God hasn't stopped anything. It's just another great day in Paris. Who knows what might have happened here today had we not prayed before you guys showed up this morning that God would protect this place. Maybe there was a madman on his way here today. I mean, it does happen. To shoot up the church, put an end to the conference. God heard our prayers to protect the building, bless the conference. And God gave the guy a flat tire, you know, 30 or 40 miles away. He's still out there fixing it. We don't even know what God prevents. Oftentimes, most of the time, we have no idea what God's doing behind the scenes so that we can live a blessed life. And yet, to the onlooker, it appears as though God's not doing anything. It's just another great day here at the church. Well, Charlie, if God exists, maybe he should put up a visible sign or something to let us know that he's stopping or preventing something. You mean like a rainbow? That would normally be on the screen. There's a beautiful rainbow picture there. But God puts up signs all, all year long, it's called a rainbow, to remind you of his mercy and his love. And yet, what have we done with the rainbow today? If I was God, I'd say, no more rainbows. You're not getting any more. God's more merciful than I am, though. When God does prevent a tragedy, a good portion of humanity just goes on their way, engaging in sin, ignoring their creator, missing out on a relationship with him, thinking there's no need for God. And as this mercy and grace continues in a person's life, many of them just think, well, who needs God? Why would I go to church with you? Everything's fine. My house is standing. I've got some money in the bank, decent health. I'm married. You know, life is is wonderful. Well, then they die and judgment falls on them for their sins and they end up in hell. That's not good. God doesn't want people to live carefree, comfortable lives only to wake up on the other side of death still in their sins. So, God, in his wisdom, does permit and even ordain some suffering, and much good comes as a result. Allow me to share with you five concise ways God uses suffering for good, and then we'll wrap it up. Five ways God uses suffering for good. We have a longer list of these on our website. Where will you find that? On our alphabetical menu. On our homepage, you can go down to the E's and click on evil and suffering. But I think five will be enough for our session here this afternoon. Number one, if you're a note taker, God uses suffering to help advance the gospel. God uses suffering to help advance the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1. Verse 12 and 13, Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it, the gospel, has become evident to the whole palace guard. Paul was suffering unjustly in a Roman prison when he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. But he told the Philippian Christians that his suffering was turning out, verse 12, for the furtherance of the gospel. I love that verse. God was using Paul's adverse, difficult circumstances to help get the gospel out. First to the prison guards and then to wherever it would spread from there. On another occasion, mentioned in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said it was because of a bodily illness I preached the gospel to you the first time. Ever struggle with a bodily illness? If Paul had not been suffering, apparently, from some sort of bodily illness that required him to stop in the region of Galatia, the Galatians may have never heard the gospel. And Paul reminds them of that years later when he writes them. He says, it was because of a bodily illness. I preached the gospel to you the first time. Apparently, if Paul had not come down with some sort of ailment, he he wasn't stopping in Galatia. He had his plans. He was going over here. And God saw that. And God's probably looking down. He's like, well, who else is going to share the gospel with those people? There are not a lot of ambassadors of Christ out there right now. And Paul's going right by there. But he's not going to stop unless, all right, you know, give him a little something. So Paul comes down with some sort of physical ailment that requires him to stop there. The gospel goes forth. Lots of people get saved. Churches are planted. I think in God's eyes, it's far better that one man or woman suffer for a short time here in this life if it can accomplish the, save, the salvation of many souls. that would suffer throughout eternity. So I want to ask you this question. Are you suffering in some way? Do you find yourself going through some adverse circumstances? There may be people you love, people you've been praying for now for years who may finally be drawn into a relationship with your Savior as a result of watching you walk through the valley that you're in with your great shepherd. They might find him to be attractive for the very first time because they look at you and they see the hope and the joy and the peace that you have and they're putting themselves in your shoes mentally and they think, I could never handle what my Christian friend is going through the way they do. And they might, for the very first time, find a relationship with Jesus attractive enough to look into that more. A second way that God uses suffering for good. Number two, God uses suffering to draw prodigals back to himself. God uses suffering to draw prodigals back to himself. Many prodigal sons and daughters who would have continued walking away from the Lord have been drawn back to him through some adversity. You'll recall Jesus' story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and that it wasn't until the prodigal son found himself eating the food that the pigs ate that he finally came to his senses and went home to his father. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Let me give you that verse again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's interesting. That verse reveals to us that sometimes it is the will of God for you to suffer. Why? Well, because it often produces repentance. A turning away from sin that you will not later regret. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, a great book on this topic, He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. In other words, you could hardly hear what he has to say when everything's going great. He whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I agree. Pain does have a way of waking people up. It's often been said that some people won't look up until they're flat on their backs. Now, it's important to point out that although God does use suffering sometimes in this way to lead a person to repentance, a person's suffering, of course, is not always related to some unrepentant sin in their life. And we can be sure of that because of verses like Psalm 34, verse 19. Psalm 34, verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So even the child of God who is walking uprightly with the Lord has no hidden sins to repent of, will still bump into seasons of affliction and trials and adversity. Job comes to mind. Daniel comes to mind. Paul comes to mind. These were godly men who still ran into adversity and persecution and a variety of different trials. Why is that? Well, number three, suffering can help shape your character. Suffering can help shape your character, number three. Job and Daniel were godly men, but they weren't perfect. They weren't weren't fully mature as far as spirituality goes. They weren't weren't, um, mere images of Jesus when it came to their character. And so God had some work to do in them. And, this, and, and I'm not saying that God allowed adversity just for this reason. There are often a variety of reasons why God will allow it. But Romans chapter 8 tells us that God's will for us as believers, he's seeking to, verse 29, conform us into the image of his beloved son. God desires to make you and me like Jesus. And so one of the ways he accomplishes that is by chiseling away at our character. And he often molds and shapes us through trials and tribulation. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, we rejoice in tribulations. How many of you have read that verse and go, yeah, for sure we do that? No, every time I read that, I think, God, help me to be more like Paul. Because he saw the big picture. He says, we rejoice in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and character and hope. Paul saw the big picture. Trials actually produce all kinds of good effects in our lives. Things like patience and humility and compassion for others and kindness, sympathy for people, a greater longing for heaven. A greater dependence on God, holiness. And all of those qualities are so beautiful. Think of the people that you've met in this life or here in this church who are kind and humble and compassionate and holy. Don't you love being around them? Aren't they, aren't they your favorite type of people to hang out with? Don't you want to be that kind of a person? I do. Well, it often takes adversity and trials to forge that kind of character. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish God could say, hey, Charlie, here's a new Ferrari. (laughs) Here's a house on the beach. Well, maybe not right on the beach. We already talked about that. Um, Here's a winning lotto ticket. Okay? And I wish that as a result of that kind of a blessing, I could just be kind and humble and compassionate. And have a great uh, dependence on the Lord. But think of the people who have all the world's wealth. Are they kind and humble, depending on God, compassionate and sympathetic towards others, longing for heaven? Often they're not. What if it was God's loving kindness that kept those worldly wealth, you know, that, that kind of stuff away from us? What if that would be the very ruin of you? The house on the beach, the money, the cars. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to think, God knew what he was doing with our life and our our situation. How about number four? Suffering can help bring praise and glory to God. Suffering can help bring praise and glory to God. We read of one example of this in John chapter 9 when Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man. In John chapter nine, you know what, why don't you turn there in your Bible since I'm not able to put it on the screen for you. John chapter nine, if you'd like. We're going to see here, just in a brief reading of these couple of verses, that the disciples, people in the back in, all the way in the first century, 2,000 years ago, struggled with the problem of evil and suffering. Just like we do today. John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from birth. That's a trial. Verse 2, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why the suffering, Lord? Jesus answered, neither hath this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. If you've read the rest of the account, you know that Jesus opened this man's eyes and he became a powerful witness to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. But notice the passage again, God providentially allowed this man to be blind from the time of his birth, not because of any sin in his life or his parents' lives, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And friends, the same is true with your suffering. Your trial, your suffering sets the scene for God to do something amazing and bring glory, honor, and praise to Jesus as a result. Of that work. I think of what God did for years in and through the life of Corey Tin Boom after that horrific time of suffering in a Nazi prison camp. After the war was over and she was set free, the whole world wanted to hear Corey Tin Boom's story of how she survived years in a Nazi prison camp. And she got to travel around the world and share the gospel with hundreds of thousands of people. She was all over the news and TV and print media. Amazing. I think of the wonderful things God is doing in and through this young lady, Bethany Hamilton. After that horrific shark attack and the loss of her left arm at the age of 13, I think on the island of Kauai. I have three daughters at home, and they have read her autobiography on her life, and it was sitting on our kitchen counter one day a couple of years ago, and I started reading some of it myself, and I found it fascinating. Bethany Hamilton's a great young Christian lady, great role model for young ladies, loves the Lord. She said something astounding. She said in her book that she would never trade back that shark attack. If she could, could have been God and redone her situation, she said, I never would have traded about. back. And so you wonder why. She goes on to explain. She says, I can put my arm around far more people today than I ever could have with both arms. Why? Because the world wants to hear her story. How did you survive that? How are you still a professional surfer? How are you still winning contests with one arm? She's amazing. But that adversity set the stage for her to have this powerful ministry glorifying the Lord now. Was it worth it to her? Absolutely. All right, number five, your suffering can help keep others from suffering. Your suffering can help keep others from suffering. An example in the Bible of this can be found in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. His brothers cast him into a pit and sold him as a slave down to Egypt where he ended up in prison, wrongly accused of a crime he didn't commit. That's a serious trial. But years later, after God made Joseph second in command of the entire Egyptian empire, Joseph was able to say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Amazing words there. Joseph rightly saw that God had sovereignly worked in the midst of the suffering to bring about great good. The saving of many lives, he told his brothers. And the Bible has several of these kinds of accounts that assure us that God has an amazing ability to accomplish great good in the midst of trials and suffering. We see this in a very clear way in the suffering Jesus endured. Think with me, if you would, for a minute about the suffering Jesus endured when he went to the cross. The arrest, mistreatment, and murder of Jesus was the biggest crime committed in the history of the human race. Think of it, sinful, evil men mocking their creator, leading him away to dying an excruciating, horribly cruel death, nailed to a wooden cross where he hung bleeding to death, struggling to breathe. This was the grossest, most vile sin ever perpetrated by the human race. And yet, the Bible teaches that it was through Jesus' suffering that God brought about the greatest good that has ever occurred. Forgiveness of sins and the free gift of everlasting life for undeserving sinners. Amazing. If you ever doubt that God can work all things together for good in your life, remember what he was able to pull off with the cross. If God can bring about this incredible good from the greatest evil ever done, surely he can work in the midst of your trial or suffering. And indeed, he is working and will be working with anything he allows to come your way. So, brothers and sisters in the faith, I encourage you, don't despair when you encounter trials and tribulation. I want to encourage you to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. God is going to be with you. He loves you. He's promised in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, to work all things together for good in the lives of those who love Him. He's promised in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, to never leave you or forsake you. And, Christian, what's the worst thing that could happen to you anyway? You die? But we have a different perspective on death in the world because we know that we have been the recipients of everlasting life. And the Bible says that for the follower of Jesus Christ to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Paul said to depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1 verse 23, is in fact very much better. Very much better. So we don't look at death. Like the world does, death for us is the doorway to glory and everlasting joy in the presence of God, the angels, and all of the redeemed because Jesus conquered death when he rose from the grave. Hallelujah for that. Amen.